1950s America. World War II is in the rearview mirror. Suburban sprawls in full effect. The American dream quite suddenly takes on a new shape. Hollywood is taking note. Hell, Hollywood is doing some of the shaping itself. And though the classic noir era is not yet drawn to a close, the nature of hard-boiled cinema has evolved considerably from the days of double indemnity and the big sleep. In both of tonight's entries, we're leaving the big city behind, first for a sleepy seaside town, then for America's premier honeymoon destination. Even our noirs are starting to sprawl. But that's not all that's new. The faces of classic noir themselves are changing. A host of post-war stars are beginning to make their mark, but even among them, none can claim the stature of Norma Jean Mortensen, AKA Marilyn Monroe. Our two films tonight chronicle Monroe's rise to the top of the marquee and straight into femme fatale lore. And of course, both films are also about the glorious, tricky, sometimes lethal institution of marriage. Perhaps an inevitable shift in post-war entertainment, here are two film noirs rooted firmly within the family dynamic. Noir stories have never exclusively belonged to detectives and drifters, but the shift away from them is plainly evident in this decade. Violence lurks everywhere, and that especially includes within the home. The specter of marriage casts a long, long shadow. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Kristen Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, we're going to be looking into some relationships on the brink. All is not well for Barbara Stanwyck and Marilyn Monroe in their respective marriages. Temptations abound. Bad decisions will be made. And someone is definitely going over the waterfall. But before we get to that, let's start out with one of our favorite hard-boiled overachievers, Chris Lang. Uh, this is... His 1953 film, Clash by Night. Get out, get out! Go to your lover, he's waiting for you! Get out! Get out! Clash by Night, directed by Fritz Lang, and starring Barbara Stanwyck, Paul Douglas, Robert Ryan, Keith Andes, and Marilyn Monroe. With screenplay by Alfred Hayes, based on the stage play by Clifford Odets, and it is very Odetsian. Odetsian is that the yes. correct? O o is that is it? I don't know, but it is. It is exactly that. Yeah. Um, so the plot: uh, Stanwyck plays May Doyle returning to Seaside Monterey after ten years on the East Coast. Her previous relationship with a married politician having come to a disastrous end. It doesn't take long for her to strike up a relationship with local fisherman Jerry, a safe and secure choice, but hardly a passionate one. 
Meanwhile, Jerry's film projectionist friend Earl is never far away, a bitter and unstable man, but one whose persistence nonetheless eventually wins May over. They begin an affair, which threatens to upend the new family she's building. It's only a matter of time before Jerry gets wise. All right. So, uh, yeah, so Clifford Odette's uh, big name in agitprop theater, uh, but also just a uh, uh, hell of a dialogue writer. Uh, one of my favorites, Sweet Smell of Success. Uh, and you can feel that same acerbic wit here. Uh, the turns of phrase are just fantastic. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super familiar with Odette's. I uh, read a little bit uh, of his theater back in college in a modernism in the 1930s class I took. But I uh, but I, and I do really like Sweet Smell of Success, but that's about the the limit of my exposure to him. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of am familiar from my theater background, but uh, but yeah, not not as much on the film side. And then I did not realize this, but uh, Joan Crawford was originally slated as the star of the film, which, uh, sure, I'd watch Which that. I can, I, I can see that, yeah. Her and Stanley just have, have such a, 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 certain, uh, a certain presence that this kind of role demands, and they've cultivated that image already really carefully through not just their noir work, but, um, but kind of across their the, like, preceding two decades of their careers. It's a role that requires a real powerhouse female star um which fortunately there were a few of them floating around hollywood at the time i mean i don't know now who this would be played by the like default you want someone that brings like classic hollywood uh gravitas um and uh, and glamour is is blanchett right but like, winslet. i I, I could see this being winslet actually yeah the more i think about that i think i think that could work too also winslet is like in her 50s not that she couldn't do it, but it's more like what actress in her 30s is there that you're like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's just a mold of of star that we don't really have anymore. No, and I, I mean, I think that's interesting because one of the, the big things to dig into with this piece is just how we've got like a, a, a we have two different molds of of, of classic Hollywood star on, on display here um, with with the small, much smaller role for, for Marilyn um, being in, in direct kind of contrast or, or as a, a complement in some ways to, to Stanwyck's central role here. Yeah, I mean, Monroe's kind of like a thematic counterpoint more than, I mean, she starts off, I don't know, I, this, uh, while the Odette's nature is a lot of fun, the, Stage play also is definitely felt in the bones of the piece. Like it never quite. It really is. I was so optimistic going into this one mm. because because I'm I'm very much a, a Fritz Lang fan. Um, this is this is among his, the weaker entries I've seen from him. Um, but but it's just because it can't escape that staginess, and I thought he was going to because it has it sets up with all this this really nice seaside imagery in Monterey and showing the. Um, showing the dock work and it, it just feels like, oh, we're going to get a really, a, a really grounded story here. He, um, Lang transplanted the story from Staten Island to coastal California. Sure, um, so like that's a, it's such a conscious choice. And then like it, it just all kind of falls off um, all, uh, after, after what I thought had, was a really promising intro. First 15 minutes or so were very promising and uh 
And it seemed like Monroe's gonna be a big part of it in a really interesting role. And then she like disappears. So, and I, I, I don't know the, the source material and I don't know what ultimately is cut or not, but, it, but during, during the filming of this is when Monroe's infamous nude photos leaked and she was right. apparently hounded a bunch by, by the press throughout filming and it. And I wonder how much that influenced just how, um, how much, how, how much her, both her presence is in this, but also how, how what I at first seems like it's going to uh, unfold throughout these like great on location shoots just kind of closes itself in. Obviously the, Part mm. of that's just the nature mm. of of it being stagey, but but I want I wonder if some of that is done just because of how much of a distraction that that was proving to be. Possibly, but, I don't know. It's don't know. yeah. It's just I, it feels it just feels so still constrained by by that stage play, and it's just like once we get inside these houses, we stay inside these houses, and we have long 10, 15 minute scenes that are. You know, I, I think Lang's doing a lot of work to not to to keep it from being too stagey and moving them around the space and keeping the camera work dynamic, but it's still just the, the pacing of it, the inherent structure of it is, and now it's this scene, or we're gonna be in this scene for 10 to 15 minutes, and then we're in the next scene, and the next scene is gonna be for 10 to 15 minutes. I think Lang is so damn interesting as a director because how do you square someone who's who's got metropolis and m um you know under their belt and some someone who does so much with without dialogue or with so little dialogue and uh and, and like increasingly throughout his career he gets he's drawn um not exclusively to noir and to and to plot heavy pieces but a lot a lot is and and it's just a totally different tactic for him and i I love some of those movies. Um, this is not one of those, but uh, but uh, it's it's. I, I think his whole body of work is really really fascinating, and I I can't even totally tell how he gets from point A to point B. And then after that, like uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to another Lang soon, but like late career, he he goes to back to adventure serials. He goes back to Doctor Mabuse. He's uh, uh it, like his. <laughs> His career is uh, is so fascinating. Yeah, I don't know how much that was, you know, biographical and like having to flee and having to take on a, a more mercenary approach in Hollywood and, you know, how much is by choice, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's like, yeah, I, the, the script is kind of hampering it as a film production, but also is giving a lot of opportunity for Stanwyck which it, I did appreciate. Definitely. Um, it, it really lets her, um, and so like, I guess putting her front and center, um, it, you know, we're in the middle of our, our femme fatale season and, and how much, I mean, one, how much is this, uh, is, is her character a femme fatale, but I mean, that directly leads to how much is this film a, a noir at all yeah, uh, I definitely, at, when I first started watching, I was like, yes, this is a noir. And then by the end, I was like, I was thinking that, was, I was debating texting you as this happens sometimes and being like, should we reconsider our episodes? Does this qualify? Um, but just, you know, I mean, A, just as a general consensus thing, it does appear on a lot of 
noir lists and the, like the dialogue is pulpy and hard-boiled and the it is mixing up in you know it's I think if if we're willing to look at um, death as a caress I think we should be willing to look at this yeah, well, first off, I think it's a, a reminder of just how how much we're moving away from from the the true hard boiled noir, mm -hmm. the pulpy thriller, and we're watching that bleed into the what what a noir is bleed into other areas and kind of evolve as we as we move further and further from the the middle of the the forties. Uh, I think that Stanwyck herself instantly, just like Joan Crawford would have. Um, lends lends the film some noir credentials by sure. by positioning her within that lead role, as opposed to if it were another uh, a, another um, a list actress of the time, it wouldn't if if you know a a Catherine Hepburn would have not pushed it in that direction. Um, uh, it would have been an entirely different feel vibe to the film um, if with with different casting, but. Stanwyck does have noir bona fides, and I think that she helped center it. Yeah, and I think uh, Robert Ryan does too. I mean, this is his first appearance on the podcast, but uh, you know, Robert Ryan is another classic um, noir lead. It's just that he is so very good at playing terrible, terrible men. He's, um, he's truly a villain's villain. Um, which is, and it's a classic, you know, this, this guy is supposed to be a pretty lovely human being who's very progressive and would agree to take on these parts to help showcase the issue. I mean, he frequently played racist because he um, wanted to, to highlight the um, the continued plight of, of racism in America, but as a person was the complete opposite of that. Pacifist, um, his wife was a, a Quaker. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And he he does have, he does have a, very grating racist impression in in this movie yes it's supposed to be it it is it's 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 so it's so jarring um but but like that that is that this is a little different well i'm used to him more in in westerns um, oh, versus, sure. versus the noir side uh, but that may just be where my my exposure to him has largely largely fallen uh but he's not he's not some you're not rooting for him to get together and I wonder if it I, I can't tell how much it's intentional and how much it's like over overdone or or just like where you know where we are looking back on this but like you're really not rooting for her to to um be romanced by this guy right well when he's introduced in his uh movie uh projectionist booth being like haven't you ever wanted to cut a woman up you're just like this is a bad man yeah yeah and like I he is he does have he does have a certain charisma to him, but I don't. It, it's not quite enough for me to like buy why she is um, is pulled away. Then again, I does set uh, her husband um, Jerry up as as just such an unexciting man um, that that you can see the the thrill I guess that that Ryan brings in or that Earl right. brings in. Although I appreciated that they they shade Jerry in by the end with when he starts to reveal that like he has a very violent temper and has worked to suppress that. That's why I think there is a case for this falling on the, the noir side, because even though there's not a murder, even though that, that, but there's, there's constantly the threat of violence in here and that you mm -hmm. can tell that there's violence throughout the community, 
there's... I thought Jerry was going to kill that baby. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it it does it does build. Like they they set that up in that... repeatedly with newspaper articles and stories about children found under bridges and such that you're like, oh, this is going to end bad. Yeah, the generational violence that you see, how his how what his his family brings in to it, and there's the just violence throughout the town through um through uh through Peggy and Joe, through Joe's relationship with, with her, uh, uh, with Marilyn. Yeah, that also is, I thought it was really interesting that, to get back to Marilyn, that, you know, that she's this, like, blue-collar, almost tomboy who's like, you try to take a swing at me, I'm gonna take a swing back at you. Which is, which is a really, uh, an unusual mode to see Marilyn in, but it also shows that, that, that you're, we're watching them figure out where they know mm. she's got something. Yeah. Um, and and of course, external factors are going to help in, continue to 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 boost her in the the public eye. But like Hollywood is still figuring out what the right um, what the right showcase for her is. And we're we're about to uh, our next next film will come from like her her big year. Right. Uh, that really that really ignites her to top of the marquee status for me it's very much um it also reminded me of our conversation about mildred pierce and that intersection of melodrama and noir i think you know what kind of keeps us from being noir is that it is more interested in character than in plot right if it was interested in plot it'd be like okay they're starting an affair so let's get to the you know bad decisions part of this but instead it's just who will she pick how will what how will all this play out for everybody? Yeah, I think it's a really good call out and and that's totally Odette's thing is he yep. he cares more about about character than than plotting and and that's um and and that just doesn't square as well with with what we think of as as noir. We um we're definitely moving um in, in this case away from that that pulpy side. Uh, and and there's still a space for that, but it uh, you, you feel like you're getting increasingly tangential to what the the core of noir is. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the the outer outer skirts of uh, noir city, I guess. I guess it's a city. Yeah, um, it's got a lot a lot of interesting things in it. Um, I still think it's worth checking out. Uh, certainly, if you're a Stanwyck fan, um, yes. or or if you're a, a Lang completionist, but but ultimately, it's not. Not one that I found too engaging. Uh, still liked it, but uh, but a lot of missed opportunities in the the adaptation to uh, to a film. Yeah, especially the the back half. Uh, like it was just sort yeah. of it kept losing steam as it went along. You know, we'll start talking about it here in a moment. But both this and the next title are films far more interested in the female character, right? Like in contrast to our classic run of. And fatal films from the 40s those were all or almost all about a male character encountering uh, a female seductress who then brings them over to some kind of criminal plot and these are both films that are told from the female perspective and i think that is a big part of why they feel different even if they're still you know male writers male directors and all that and we're gonna we're gonna bring this uh come back to this too but but this is this is definitely a case where you can feel the like that this is this is set in motion because Barbara Stanwyck is coming 
back to to the small town from the big city and and she's looking to resettle and re uh, and, and get back on her feet and figure things out and that's why she settles for for jerry because he's safe and uh and, and is going to be someone consistent and instead of these noir stories being about a detective or a reporter pulled into a web of intrigue or a or a hard up drifter who who gets sucked into crime like this is um this is how it all how the the push for a traditional family uh, mm-hmm. spirals into something else and how there's still violence lurking within all of that and and you see a lot more of these stories i mean that clearly that existed in some there, there's certainly lots of elements of that in Mildred pierce too that that can be drawn on but um but like the, these kind of stories seem much more prevalent now that we're in the 50s yeah this feels like on the other side of mildred pierce to the melodrama side from noir like mildred pierce feels pretty much like right in the middle thanks to its framing device and the actual murder that takes place whereas this is like i don't know like 60 40 melodrama noir yeah agree even 70 30 i don't know um but yeah i i think um Unless there's anything else you want to touch on, we can no, get to no, part uh, two here. Dive on. Uh, to 1953's Niagara. Take me, take me in your arms. She sang of love just as she lived for love. Like a Lorelei, flaunting her charms as she lured men on and on to their eternal destruction. And her own husband was no exception. It's getting late. Hand me my slip. I hate to move when we have a fight. Never want to leave your side. <laughs> Give me some orange juice, Georgie. <laughs> it's Marilyn Monroe skyrocketing to new dramatic heights. Directed by Henry Hathaway and starring Marilyn Monroe, Joseph Cotton, Gene Peters, and Max Showalter. Who was not great? <laughs> Ooh, that was. Uh, man. We'll talk about it. Uh, written by Charles Brackett, a frequent Wilder collaborator. Uh, along with Walter Reisch and Richard Breen. Uh, So Monroe and Cotton play Rose and George, a married couple on vacation at Niagara Falls, as George is rebounding from his stay at an army mental hospital following service in Korea. They are occupying a cabin meant for a honeymooning couple, Polly and Ray, who begin to observe their troubled marriage from afar. And boy, is it troubled. George is constantly jealous of all the attention Rose receives, causing outbursts of violence and deep paranoia. And that paranoia turns out to be justified as Rose is revealed to be plotting George's murder at the hands of her lover, Patrick. Suffice it to say, it does not go down according to plan, and soon a very much alive George is roaming around, presumed dead, and Polly gets caught up in the plot of a dead man looking for revenge on his wife. Very Hitchcock. Very Hitchcock. Uh, and I think the, the, the Technicolor helps um, helps cement that that feel to it, even, even if this is before a lot of the, um, the big Hitchcock Technicolor Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, almost before almost all of them. I mean, for me, the Technicolor was taking us back just a couple episodes to Leave Her to Heaven and and looking forward to Vertigo. You know, the I think, and we talked about it during that episode too. That there's, I, I really appreciate how the vivid saturation of Technicolor is a um, makes for us another effective like heightening of aesthetic in the same way that the shadows of black and white noir does um, oh on a number of levels i would i would pair this with leave her to heaven for a, a great double billing there's a, totally. a lot to, to dig in there 
um, on, on mental illness uh, in, in a noir antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, uh, th- this, this largely worked for me. It's not perfect, but it, no. yeah, there's a lot to like about it. Uh, get, get, <laughs> we'll, all right, we'll get to your, your gripes, uh, which I think are, I think might be worse for you than for me, which I just kind of wrote off. He's, let me tell you, he's a, he's a slice of turkey stuffed with wheat, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the, this was uh, a big hit. This was a, a very, um, this came out early in, in 1953 and kind of kicked off a, a massive year for, for Marilyn uh, with, with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire coming up later in the year. So, uh, I mean, it's it a one, two, three punch right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, I think that it's, because uh, I think this is pretty much it, right? Like, it's like this, uh, Clash of Night and Asphalt Jungle are pretty much the only Monroe noir entries, which is a shame. Yeah, I think that's, it, it, it is. She's having fun here. Uh, I, even though her part in Asphalt Jungle is really small, she's very good in that, and I, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's even, I would... So it's probably the same size Clash by Night, right? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I think she. It feels like it might be a little bit smaller, but she has a lot of impact in it. So yeah, um, uh, I. But uh, but that's a good one. Um, but yeah, we don't get a whole lot more. This this is like Marilyn in in femme fatale mode, and right, it works. It it works. It does work. Um, are you? Where where are you on on Marilyn Monroe in general? Where it's 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 weird to talk about someone like that's so that that's at her right. Level. It's like icon icon outside of performance, yeah. right? Like there's that whole metatextual or extra textual element that's um, but that, that's not like I don't know uh, as icon sure um, as performer. Um, I always feel like I'm looking for the signs of how bad her personal life was in the performance and you know how well publicized it was that she would have troubles on set and you know like Wilder having issues with her during some like it hot etc etc um this, I, and I, I have the same problem watching um uh Judy Garland like example I'm watching a Judy oh, Garland yeah. performance I'm always just like what what's the studio doing to her this time um have you seen the misfits I have not. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. To me, it's like it's it's just so. It's so painful to watch. It's uh, between Monroe and Montgomery Cliff and um, and and Clark Gable. Um, it's just like watching watching a bunch of performers in a, a tailspin. And it's mm-hmm. I think it's a, a great movie, but it's a messy movie and it's a, mm-hmm. a painful movie. And um, and I, uh, I I do really like it. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah. Worth, worth checking out for sure. Yeah, but I mean, even like setting that aside, I think, you know, in the right role, like, you know, she is a movie star, right? And it's not a, the the formula, it, you know, it's not as much as more, it's not as much about performance, although performance is still part of it, but it's also just about like screen presence, right? And that is something that she has. And, and when it's funneled into the right role, like it is here, um, when she's you know shaping it to fit it it can be really effective um it, yeah it works really really well here i mean i think to me gentlemen prefer blondes is like her used 
in in peak capacity but mm -hmm. but like this is this is pretty close that um but it gives her quite a trajectory throughout this and if there's only if there's any complaint i have is that i uh even though even though her um ultimate end um is is staged i think quite well i still like want it even more because she is she is such a uh an icon yeah and and the movie like you know we start off with her we start the movie in close-up on her well no, we start the movie following what's his name in the in the, and his voice the falls but then falls. like really the movie starts in close-up on her um and she exits in a wide shot on the ground and we cannot see her basically yeah. and and that's a part of that is like uh, both aesthetic and sensorial choices with regards to violence but also um it, yeah i agree that it just feels like not fitting um some somewhat both like extra textually someone who is that much of an icon and within the text of the film someone who has been so important to the narrative that has probably like half the movie up to that point been our point of view character um all of a sudden is now taken out and taken out in kind of a undeserving or underserved way there's so much this this what i like that this movie is doing is just how much it it continuously shifts perspectives and um and and, and both both between characters and then also even you know within where our sympathies lie with with characters throughout and um and monroe's got the the biggest transformation in that regard and um as you know you watch her like everyone seems everyone sees sees her like leering at her from the outside admiring her and then you realize that she's plotting murder and then by the end you are feeling real sorry for her because uh because she's of, basically in a horror movie by the end yeah totally is i mean except for just two on like um you know like diabolique yeah it does it's got some major diabolique vibes going on you're not a big cotton fan are you or no that he was just he he was smiling the whole time just the entire he could not stop smiling i mean like that's a symptom rather than disease but um yeah i i mean his the, that whole plot with the wheat executive and hitchcock would handle that a lot funnier you know what i mean like with a much lighter touch but also it's it's he he is such a drip that i'm like anytime this the story returns to him and he's like doesn't believe his wife which is like you know sort of a convention of this particular kind of subplot or kind of plot of the subgenre but um all the all the fun stuff's happening over there with the other characters well everything with, with ray i don't know i kind of like i just kind of wrote it out wrote it off like he was he he was not good but he he was I appreciated a little bit of a uh, of a tableau being built of of the uh, touristing community. I don't know. I liked I liked that it felt it felt like it expanded the world just a little bit, and and that um, that even though that didn't work for everything with him didn't work for me specifically. I liked how this all felt like it was like this whole story just felt like it was circling the drain or the falls if it were mm -hmm. and that there's this big enormity at the center of it um that is established at the beginning and you know it's going back to it uh over and over again and over it and uh, and but but it really felt like like 
the, uh, we were getting to see this movie kind of built around this this big natural sure. uh, occurrence, and and so I liked seeing it fleshed out instead of it just being, uh, you know, a simple a simple story of murder. There's a little bit more going on, but apparently yeah, a, lot was, a lot was cut. Um, I I had left this uh, I had left this being very uh uh very incredulous about how the murder was handled mm-hmm. um uh because i felt like is there no police work george was was in the army he was in an army hospital surely there's some kind of means beyond shoes to, to uh, well, but how long is it you know it's it's this all takes place over the matter of like a couple of days the whole plot and like yeah, and I have to, they have to point. mail that, right? They can't even like fax it, you know. Like, so you have to wait till a piece of mail arrives. With the first, you have to mail that. You know, maybe you can call them, but you know, you're also calling internationally, so you know, probably have to mail them and then wait for them to send back the photograph to identify him. And in the meantime, the one person who could identify him, I mean, the real thing is they could have asked the the other couple to come in and be like, "Hey, is this the guy?" But it, I don't know, like... it, and and it it feels like there's just a total lack of uh, not not that I get super excited about that that particular plot strand, but but it turns out that that if I feel like there was just like a lack of investigation, it's because a lot of that got cut, um, mm. and it and it was intended to be there, and that made a whole lot more sense to me when that like apparently they thought it just wasn't working. Um, sure, and... I also was just generally thrown by the fact that he had an Irish accent. <laughs> Which, like, I thought about it. I was like, of course, we're in Canada, Commonwealth country. I, absolutely, there would be, like, somebody who's, who is a recent enough Irish immigrant that they would still have an accent circa 1950. But it was also still, like, it, it just, I had to do that mental math. I was like, wait a minute, where where are we? Did we yeah. did we change locations and I missed it? No, I guess that it sounded like that was part of why it, it like, they felt like it wasn't working um, mm. that with, with more of the more more of his accent in there and it was for, uh, doing exactly what it, it did throwing people more than it than it should but it's also uh it's also i think difficult for us to you know look back and and you know put ourselves in the, the um right uh in that mindset of you know there's much, much more recent immigrants in in 1950s america and, and thinking in terms of what the the landscape of the uh, country is at the time right and i want to say as much as the overall picture is a little bit too bumpy of a ride for me the the middle sequence from the uh the attempted murder through to Marilyn's departure is very effective like that is when it's really channeling hitchcock and is doing the like who who who's who's dead and who's alive and i mean like as a jaded viewer in 2024 i was like oh yeah the husband survived but still it was still even even not being like taken by that turn i was still enjoying the ride and then everything once he's a dead man is a lot of fun like it it has it it is able to milk that pretty well and then he you know killed marilyn monroe and then i was like how is there another 15 minutes left in this movie but of course, somebody, as you said, somebody had to go over back. <laughs> there is no way this was not, you know that right from the beginning. <laughs> Someone, you don't call a movie Niagara yeah. and, and involve, uh, in, involve murder and, and 
um, you know, dead men coming back and not send that man over the falls. Right. And especially the um, sequence where they go to the cave and it's like the waterfall is so loud that there's no dialogue and she's being chased alone in bright day. Like it's, it was so effective and with eerie the, with because the it rain was ponchos and, the rain ponchos yeah, and, and the bright it, sunlight. All, it makes, it, it's a great use of color. It's a great yeah. use of, of landscape, um, a, a great use of sound, all, all of it um, working really well in a way that, and here's, here's the, here, here's like the counterpoint to, uh, to the previous discussion on, you know, uh, noir being more pulpy and hard boiled. This is like, this is noir with a budget and you can, mm -hmm. you can tell money's been pumped into this. And a lot of locations tell me, I mean, generally I was like, did the Niagara tourism board pay for this? But I doubt they did because there's a lot of murder too. So I think <laughs> it was just more like, this is a great location. Let's, let's use it. Um, and, and once again, we've got that we we have on multiple counts, uh, you know, marriage coming into play. Yes. You have you very specifically have uh, America's honeymoon destination um, as the as the centerpiece for this. You've got right um, one got one, the, one couple who's revisiting their honeymoon location in hopes to re reignite the spark. At least that's what we're told. And then the other couple who never got to do their honeymoon and are finally doing it. Taking back to the first one, right? The first one is very explicitly about the battle of the sexes, right? Like Jerry's friend, uh, Ryan's character's name, I can't believe it, Earl. Once Earl enters the scene and he's like, women are awful and, you know, you can't trust any of them. And, uh, you know, I choose which woman to be with. I throw them on the ceiling, whichever one sticks, that's the one I pick. Um, and meanwhile, Stan would coming in and like giving him as good as she gets. And even from the beginning with uh, Monroe and, and Stanwick's brother, uh, Stanwick's character's brother, like they're like fighting and, and debating of like what role violence has in a relationship. Uh, you know, obviously this podcast's opinion is none unless it's between consenting adults that enjoy that sort of thing. It is for, uh, foremost on that play and eventually movie's mind is the differences between men and women and how that can or cannot be reconciled in marriage. And I think that continues continues here as a theme. I mean, and, you know, the femme fatale obviously invites that because so often the femme fatale, especially in this era, the femme fatale is married. Usually that's part of what makes it illicit to begin with and gives the relationship stakes is that the woman is married. And so there will be consequences if it's discovered. I think that'll kind of fade away as we move into the neo-noir era because of changing, you know, gender politics. But so while that is sort of present throughout the subgenre. I think these two films especially are grappling with it because it is again so much about the the woman's perspective. It's not a single man rolling into town and then becoming en entangled with this scheming woman who's stepping out on her marriage. It's either the woman at the heart of the affair, and we're invested in her relationship in her relationship and character and understand what she's doing it, or it's um, you know an another married couple running into an affair in progress and kind of observing it from the outside and being drawn into the machinations, especially the woman being drawn into the machinations of it. Um, and again, that we we get Monroe as the point of view character as much as we do as as the cuckolded husband and not at all the, um, the one that she's having an affair with, right? I mean, he's like in three scenes and then he's gone and has five lines or something. How Marilyn gets set up here and how 
um, it really feels like it's signifying. Uh, Mar Marilyn in general seems like she signifies a big a big shift in in film um, at the time in, in film in Hollywood and and what kind of pictures how women are being presented and what kind of pictures are being put out there um, and and I think if you look at if you look at um, something like uh, Clash by Night driven by by Stanwyck um, or if you think about Mildred Pierce and you think about these noirs that are kind of courting that feel like they're courting female viewers in a bigger way. M Monroe seems to consistently like this. This feels like it's not. This feels like it's not doing the same thing. It's approaching it from a different. Uh, sure, uh, no, that's fair. Like it's standpoint. It, yeah, and, this is not a melodrama. Kissing no, noir. This is noir, and, no. and Monroe is like, is back to the classic femme fatale threat to. Um, you know the American right. dream, yeah. The American, marriage the American dream, which itself is, which is increasingly coming to mean the American family, um, right. the, the nuclear seven. family in the suburbs, yeah. white picket fence, etc. Yeah, I, 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 I just feel like there's something, there's something here, like you know, going over the falls, where, where, we're seeing like the end of. Um, we're seeing the end of this era of the the Crawfords and the the Stanwicks mm -hmm. and, and 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 all that are driving, you know, drive, driving driving pictures that um, that depict them as uh, as really as as strong, capable women who you know get may get into trouble, um, but like ultimately they're they feel like they're cut from a different cloth. Whereas Monroe feels like she is being put by studios on screen to be ogled um right. and and yep. that's not that she's not bringing a whole lot herself but it does it does feel like the studio what the studios are pushing out there starts to really shift right around right around here and right and this, like you know sex appeal hasn't always been part of the star making machinery of hollywood but definitely it is more explicit right like it is and it is like also last. more it's extra gonna... textual and it's gonna last like that is the new you know, sex and violence sells. And that is uh, especially going to be apparent in the femme fatale uh, mold and stories, I think, as as we go along, the, the sex and the violence is going to become more and more explicit. Yeah, they're very true. Um, so, uh, so I think, I, and I think Marilyn leaves Marilyn leaves such a such a good mark on here, uh, uh, but I I guess I put her, like you'd mentioned, very much in that Hitchcock kind of vein of, uh, and and we're we're here before but be, um, before Vertigo right and before mm -hmm. but before like Hitchcock's icy blonde um, <laughs> uh, uh, thing really solidifies, but it still it still feels so so of a piece with that and. Um, like, like that's the kind of thriller that we're we're moving to, and there, there are noir elements. There's certainly noir elements to what what Hitchcock does consistently, uh, but it's also moving it into something, something different, uh, something, uh, one a, a little bit higher profile and more packaged for the the, the masses, 
and um, and also is very very male gaze um, in a in a way that that I guess is always it's always there, but it, it, it you know I think about Hitchcock and I I think about him taking that to a, a an obsessive level, even though we kind of questioned Clash by Night a little bit. Um, I do think this ultimately is a it's a really strong pairing. And okay. and when you when you suggested the other day uh, to, to just let's just call this episode Marriage Story, so spot on because this is where we're at in in the early fifties. This is where where America is at, and it feels like this is really speaking to the speaking to the times and and noir adapting to um, right. to the kind of stories that are. Uh, that are demanded and i think also it's you know it, it does feel like the ends in sight right like we have one more episode after this before our intermission and when we, we when we return the classic noir era will be over so i think and i think and our and and we'll get into this uh next week but um but our our wrap-up is really feels uh that less of the those films feel less of the times to me than then they are um then they are a bit more of a call callback um certainly one of them very directly uh, uh but um but i feel like this these two speak much more to you the know, present that tense yeah present 1953 right yeah. yeah it also reminds me of um you know we just stayed alone episode with uh, the desperate hours and yeah. in the same way that was about noir on attacking the the suburbs you know this feels metaphorically the same where it's like i said attacking the sanctity of of core american values of of the marriage and of the nuclear family but it's in doing that it is diluting a lot of what made noir noir right it's like it's reaching the point where you're you're either have to keep escalating and doubling down on what makes noir noir to the point that you're hitting the fever dream of you know touch of evil and kiss me deadly or you're embracing other genres and other modes of filmic expression to the point that like and i think niagara is 100 noir but at the same time it's like we're we're pretty far afield from where we were 10 years ago with double indemnity and that generation of, of noir films. And so I think it is sort of that like identity crisis. It feels very present and not that this movie feels like it's in crisis, but just the overall sense of like, you know, that we're talking about Clash by Night and it is that like, what, what is, and obviously also like noir as an idea was just making its way back to the States as like a, as a genre concept or film movement or however you want to define it. Um, so it's not like they were having those conversations in the same way that you might about like comedy, which is much more easily accessible and a longstanding tradition. But it does feel kind of like we're it's it's dispersing. We're at the end, and there's a diaspora of noir components, and then it's going to be you know fallow fields for 10, 15 years until they, they reconstitute themselves and have taken root elsewhere and, and become new and interesting hybrids that's, that are more strongly or continue the, the noir tradition. Till the, till the directors that grew up watching them are, are 
finding ways to incorporate them in the the films that they're they're making down the right. line. No, in the meantime, it just gets drowned out by sword and sandal and biblical epics and big uh, big musicals, musicals and yeah, yeah, all these hundred million dollar movies, basically. I mean, a lot of, of messy pictures. Lot yeah, of, um, that sounds yeah. familiar. Mm-hmm. When is, when does when does Hollywood ever <laughs> exploit a, a trend and go over the top on something to the point that it kills the golden goose and then <laughs> has to reinvent itself? When has that ever happened in the history of film? No, never again. Never again. Really. Never again. Uh, I think that kind of puts a button on these two. Uh, we're almost there. We're almost almost through the classic One era. More. But before oh, we get no. there, what's in the box, Tristan? What's in the box? Uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, I started out my year, uh, as as seems to be the case often <laughs> these years, with uh, with some heavy binging of, of Hindi cinema uh, and, uh, and, and one of the absolute best I have I have had the pleasure of stumbling across uh, is is a 80s Bollywood film called Najina. Uh, it is about, it is, stars Shredevi, uh, one of the great Bollywood actresses as a snake woman. And it is so fun. The music is grand. Um, it does not take itself too seriously, but it is gorgeous and it is epic. And uh, Amrish Puri, who we all know uh, side as the guy from Temple of Doom, um, makes an excellent villain uh, who who really livens things up. Um, there's fantastic snake dancing. Um, I don't know. I like. Uh, I guess I like my uh, stories of women turning into reptiles, and there might be some of that coming up in our uh, <laughs> uh, in in our season ahead. No, I saw I saw that review in your letterbox, and it is added uh, to the long favorites I've seen. Yeah, I added it to the long-growing list of um, Indian films that that I that you recommended or I've seen you enjoy that I will eventually get to. One well, um, one day when when you're ready to, to dive in, I'll try and steer you toward which ones are better to start with. That, yeah, that might not be the entry point, but uh, I look forward uh, it to would be a, it. Would be a terrible entry point. It's pretty fun, uh, but. Uh, um, but I, I I really loved it. Um, another another great one I saw, uh, Jewel Thief, was um, was also kind of top tier for me from the the sixties. Um, just a great um, jewel heist movie with um, with shifting yeah. identities and uh, beautiful music and uh, and that that one I put pretty pretty high up there on my recent watches also. Nice. Uh, let's see. I'm going to plug. Uh... I watched, I'm gonna plug two movies. I'm gonna plug three movies. We're catching up on a lot of movies here. I don't know, I watched, I had like a really good start to the year and then since then I've been very busy and have not been successful at picking movies to watch. But um, at the start of the year, I had some really great things that I watched. So I watched uh, Eye of the Devil, uh, which is this 1966 British folk horror, but it's before like Focar kicked off, right? It's proto Focar. So to me, it's like the black, what Black Christmas does for slashers, this does for Focar. And it's uh, a star, a great cast. It's Deborah Carr, Deborah Kerr, David Niven, Sharon Tate, uh, Donald Pleasance, pops up like two scenes. 
Um, and it's about this woman, Deborah Kerr, who married a French aristocrat, and her husband gets called back to the um, hereditary castle, and she follows with her two kids, even though he asked her not to come, and slowly she becomes aware of the, you know, disturbing small town rituals that that take place here. Um, and it's just fun because it's like, A, it's unwittingly playing with the, the tropes of folk art because it's folk art doesn't exist right it's like if it had come 10 years later so it was after the wicker man you'd be like oh it's taking what the wicker man did and kind of spinning it on its head a little bit but it actually came first so you're just like oh this is really they didn't realize there was another way to do this so they took a really interesting tack um also there's like some really great montage sequences in it that are uh Oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm into that uh care niven yeah love them yeah I'm, no it's I'm it's aboard. definitely worth a watch um also i watched uh night is short walk on girl uh which is a 2017 film by anime anime by um uh masaki yuasa i butchered that name just now um very distinct Art, artistic style uh but more than that it is like uh, a movie that's just sort of drunk on what it feels like to be 18 19 and out in the world for the first time and being an adult and it, it packs just a ton of story into just one night and um as with niagara there's a uh, a male lead who i do not enjoy and if it was not in the movie i would rate it much i would rate it even higher um but uh, you know he uh, he's whatever. But the uh, like his part of the story is basically a, a manic pixie dream girl rom com. But the majority of the movie is from the manic pixie dream girl's point of view and the adventure that she goes on, and it is that part is enrapturing. Um, and it's just like a movie that's in love with life and and is contagious in that regard. Oh, um, I like that. Yes, that was great. Uh, and then uh, I also finally watched Margaret. The uh, ah, yeah. Yes. There's um, a there's a mess of a movie that still works in spite of itself. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. I thought I watched the extended cut. Um, and uh, yeah, if you can get into its rhythms, uh, all 180 minutes is worth it. Because and it's just I love how it's uh, like a really serious drama about like ethics that happens to run headfirst into this really self-involved and narcissistic teenager who just keeps fucking up like the the choice of the Anna Paquin character being the point of view character for this experience uh is I think what really elevates it and, and makes it sing um and also just what Lonigan's doing with um his sound design in this movie is incredible. I, I haven't seen it since theaters. Um, I, I probably saw it at the Siskel Center back in like 2011 or something like that. And mm -hmm. and I didn't want to do the two and a half hour cut then. Yeah. Uh, so I've not seen Extended. The Extended is worth it. It's on Criterion right now. So yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was going to stop there. I could, there's a couple others I could plug to. Johnny Guitar is the other one that I would really Oh, Johnny Guitar. Love it, Great. love it, love it, love it. Great stuff. 
yeah, just that image of her in the white wedding dress as the, the whole place burns down is just like fantastic. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've been on a bit of a Western kick. It's a big or big gap in my uh, my film viewing history. So I'm catching up with stuff. We could keep talking about great movies forever, but unfortunately, it's time for the episode to come to an end. Thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we close out the first half of our season and the 1950s with a pair of noirs from two veteran directors of the season, Otto Preminger and, you guessed it, Fritz Lang. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.